I do not want the sleeping giants, Andrew, to ever go back to sleep. I want them to stay awake. I want them to continue to fight for what is just, for what is right, and for what is good. To not allow a Biden-Harris administration to have a honeymoon because the pandemic just revealed what was already there. And like you just said, that populist energy on the Trump side is going to go somewhere. And it's going to go to somebody that's a little more savvy than uh, President Donald J. Trump. You, you, you could have someone both malignant and competent. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like not not just like uh, like, like the kind of buffoonery uh, of, uh, of... It would be uh, worse. Trump. It, it would be worse. So it would behoove the Democratic Party to get a clue and to get a clue quickly and to provide a, to have a vision that provides provision for the people. And that's why I love about your universal basic income. You you came in with some really strong ideas. And I think um, between your campaign and our campaign, we were quite a force in awakening the sleeping giants and getting people to dream another dream, a bigger dream to see the world through new eyes and through a different lens of what is possible. Zach! New president elect Joe Biden. Yes, <laughs> man, the Trump era is over. The national wow. global nightmare. Did you see that? That uh, like people were celebrating around the world. I guess it makes sense. <laughs> but like that, yeah. people, people were like dancing in the streets all over the world. New York was pretty cool. Uh, the liberals are having a field day in the urban cities, in particular, going nuts. Um, Wild. It's amazing to see. How are you feeling, man? Uh, I feel great. You know, it was hysterical. Someone told me on Fox they referred to those uh, celebrations as protesters. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's That makes sense. That checks out. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty hysterical. It's like, look at the protest by this freaking dancing in the street. Mostly peaceful protests celebrating. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um it's it was kind of cool to see all the global leaders like chime in, including Israel. Like Netanyahu um, was very very glowing of his relationship with Joe Biden, which is interesting. Well, I mean, heck, Joe's the new president. Time to get in on that action. <laughs> yeah. I I genuinely am concerned about what's going on in the Trump White House right now um, because uh, imagine being him and just hearing everyone like chanting and singing outside of, outside of the White House twenty four seven. Uh, and the alternate reality that you have, uh, is shrinking very fast, like collapsing on you. Like even the people around you are just like looking around being like, what well, you know, what, what are we going to do? Um, I, I, I'm really concerned about what happens over the next two months because like, I feel like we're, we could see Trump really degenerate, uh, which, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine what he could do that's, um, worse or deteriorate. Uh, but I'm genuinely concerned about his state of being, um, because, for someone who thrives on positive adulation so much, like feeling like you're um, uh, universally uh, a mocked or being a loser or whatnot, and then have to actually kind of put on a brave face for two months or what? Like the whole thing is bizarre. Um, you know, like most human beings in that situation would just be like, and I'm out. I'm just going to like curl up in bed and like, you know, let the world forget about me for a minute. But that's obviously not an option for him. 
it's and it's gonna be it, it's gonna be delicate. Um, you know, I'm I'm genuinely concerned about it. So he is, as of this point, President Trump. Um, we're recording this Sunday afternoon. Um, you're re- you're getting this Monday, November 9th. At this point, Donald Trump has not conceded the election. In fact, he has said publicly he's going to fight it because he believes he won and won by a lot, to use his words. Um, to me, it does not appear um, every network has called the race. It does not appear that there's any wild, wide scale or any sort of scale um, voter fraud or shenanigans. Um, there is you know, there's probably some things on the margins, as always. He lost like 10 ways from sideways at this yeah. point. It was closer than we all thought, by a lot closer than we all thought, but it was a pretty decisive win. I mean, he flipped four, possibly five states um, from 2016. Well, well, this is the tough right. part, Zach, is like, and and I, I do get upset when people talk about it as if it was a slam dunk victory. It was a slam dunk victory if you eventually count the different uh, electoral votes in the paths four days later, five days later, you know what I mean? Uh, like, uh, like and, and that helps yeah. a great deal where like, you don't need PA necessarily if you get Arizona and Nevada, you know, you don't need a- any of it if you get Georgia. So like that, that feels great. Thank goodness. Thank you everyone who voted for Joe all over the country. Um, that said, this was much, much more tightly contested than it should have been. And it was a massive crushing disappointment for Democrats if they are at all honest. If you'd lined up House leadership and said, hey, how are you going to fare in the House? No one would have said, oh, we're going to lose like six, seven incumbent races. We're going to lose absolute uh, races. They were counting on wins. They were trying to expand the map. Growing, yeah. And and, uh, we supported many candidates in places that were trying to go purple. uh, You know, in Texas and Nebraska and Iowa. And people like... Our candidates essentially got washed out by a rising Trump tide in many of these states. Um, And again, if you lined up uh, House leadership prior to uh, Election Day, they would have been, I'm sure, cocky about how many seats they were going to gain. None of them would have said we're going to lose seats. None of them would would have said we're going to lose seven of our current members. It was. And so you talked about this on CNN um and it was in my opinion your best moment in a long time you got you just give good moments on there oh so me uh, no I'm kidding <laughs> I meant it positively I meant it with love um but um but you said um you said basically that the democrats have a lot of work to do um and that a feeling we felt was that when we went and said you're a democrat people look at you like you had a you know a, another head grown out of you um and that the Democrats seem to have spent too much time policing a lot of cultural issues instead of fighting and making lives better for the working class in particular. Um, I know it's not a tweet, but it is kind of a soundbite on the show. I'd love your thoughts on I thought it was powerful. There were so many people that came out in support of that uh, across the political spectrum. Thought, care to elaborate on what you mean? But I know exactly what you mean. But for those who are listening, um, like where, where did that come from for you? And um, where do you think we go from here, frankly, as a, as a party, as a country? Well, it came from direct experience because we spent so much time in Iowa talking to uh, people just at like the general store, the the diner, the uh, hardware store, the you know, like you name it, the farm. Uh, and mm-hmm. the Democratic Party 
did not seem like their friend to a lot of these people. And then you would be like, wow. You know, and, and so as someone running for president uh, under uh, that, that party, it was jarring. Where it's like, why are you so turned off by the Democratic Party that should theoretically be your friend? Um, and it was because they did not feel like the Democratic Party was fighting for them or speaking for them. Uh, it, it seemed, if anything, to many of them that the Democratic Party was talking at them. You know? and, and this is something this is that you should like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and there's something really fundamental about this. Like this, this actually makes me angry and sad some, to some extent, is that Democrats will look up and say, hey, we won and we did win. Thank goodness. You know, like you and I fought hallelujah. very hard to try and help. Like, hallelujah. But what were the quintessential battleground states for eight years ago? Ohio and Iowa. And Ohio went red significantly last time, like eight points. Um, and despite the fact that the Biden campaign tried to flip it, like I think Joe showed up there in like the last day or two of the campaign, um, it, it it stayed red. Uh, and it was not like mm-hmm. that, that tight, um, which made me sad. Like I, I thought that we might do better in Iowa, frankly. Um, same with Iowa, where Iowa used to be quintessential purple state. It's like the first caucus state for a reason. Uh, you don't put your first caucus in a state that's frankly like really <laughs> like very red or very blue. Right I think you put it in a battleground. Uh, Obama won Iowa. Trump wins Iowa by nine points in 2016. Uh, and this is where we were campaigning. Like, and, and Trump won Iowa cleanly again this time. Our friend J.D. Shulton lost despite running a great race. Abby Finkenauer, who was a Democratic member of Congress in Iowa, lost her race. So for the Democratic Party, you're like, wait, Ohio represents the industrial Midwest and you're losing them. Uh, Iowa lose, uh, represents the agricultural Midwest and you're losing them. And then the Democratic Party's response could be like, it's all right. We're getting Arizona. We're getting Georgia. We're getting places where there are demographic changes. Uh, and and that's, like, I mean, again, thrilled to, to, uh, to be bringing in president-elect Joe Biden. But like, if you just give up essentially on being competitive in places like Ohio and Iowa, then you do actually end up um, defining yourself increasingly as a a party that represents um, other parts of the country that are not the Midwest or not uh, like places that, that are not frankly that diverse. Uh, and, and that gins up polarization all the more where you look up and say, well, now my priorities are not uh, fighting for farmers, fighting for factory workers, fighting for that stuff. Uh, you know, now my priorities are going to be like the growing urban centers and like the, the places where people are moving. And, and you know, it that's possibly an electoral winning strategy. But I'm going to say that is a losing strategy for our country. If that is the plan, because then you just end up uh, increasing polarization rather than decreasing it. If you're the party, your incentives are not actually the same as the country's. It's like if the Democratic Party is like, well, no skin off my back. I can still win. Um, I'll just win in another way. Um, and, and like no one pays a price for that. But you know who does pay a price for that? All of us. But also the Democrats in Ohio and Iowa. Like, I'm friends with J.D. And the fact that J.D. campaigned his ass off and then lost not competitively breaks my heart. J.D. was great. J.D. raised a lot of money. J.D. did a bit of, like, he did everything in his in his power. Uh, and and he, he got wrecked 
in part because of this phenomenon that, uh, that I'm talking about. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Joe Biden right now and Kamala Harris have, have and they gave their victory speech talking about we need to unify the country. And they're they had it kind of when they're running. But now it's a big time. We we want to be the president of all Americans, not just red Americans or blue Americans. Um, I think those are words that sound nice. Um, and I think in reality, in my opinion, and I, you could argue this is fact that the Democrats were not very unifying when the Donald was in charge. You know, now, Don, now Don, Trump has his own, you know, various forms of divisiveness, but the Dems were not like lining up to to um, to be best friends with with the Republicans. Right. Unfortunately, Trump enhanced polarization because if Trump's like, hey, like, uh, right. you know, uh, I'm like uh raging extremist and then you're like let's get along like that you know <laughs> yeah that's right so I'm, I'm not putting it all on dems at all um but i do think there's probably some guilt on both sides but my, my question is like if you like, if you're joe both how do you start to bring the country together in in your kind of first your first initiatives and uh legislative actions in the first hundred days or so but also you know if you were him how do you steer the party because i think joe is actually more aligned with where you are at least like theoretically right in terms of your conversation with him like what what do you think um how do you implant this in the democratic leadership um going forward i thought joe gave it a, a tremendous speech last night uh it gave me gave me chills like the the um end was maybe the best joe biden speech i've ever seen uh it, and it, it was incredible that you know, you have that kind of moment where you know you're going to be the president. You're trying to bring the country together and you're channeling something bigger than yourself. I was so happy for us all, uh, but happy for Joe uh, and Kamala in particular because, you know, you could sense that they embraced and embodied the magnitude of the occasion in the moment. Uh, so I think Joe's definitely going to be very, very unifying um, in terms of message, in terms of um getting trying trying to uh heal really um you know he he's mm -hmm. he's naturally someone who wants to uh 
work with different types of folks. He, he's not someone who's like, oh, you're, you're not someone that, you know, I, I want to deal with. Uh, so that's very positive. Um, the problem right now is that Mitch McConnell does not seem to be reciprocating, where like some of the early noises out of Mitch were, oh, I'm not going to appoint any uh, cabinet secretaries unless they meet with our stringent, you know, conservative yeah. approval. Uh, and then even Lindsey Graham <laughs> was like, Joe deserves a cabinet. <laughs> you know, like even, no, really. <laughs> Lindsey Graham sounds reasonable. Yeah, whereas like, come on, Mitch, like we should at least let Joe like appoint some people. Uh, so... So this is already heading down a very rough path, which is why we are heading to Georgia. Um, because if Joe says great things and then can't get anything done, we are not making progress, really. Uh, and the 70 plus million folks who voted for Trump, like that to me is the most clear sign that things are not really going well uh, in terms of uh, most communities around the country. Uh, you know, I, I frankly expected uh, Joe to win by more because I thought that many of the folks who voted for Trump that I talked to uh, changed their mind. We're like, this is not the guy. Um, but then Trump found new voters, you know, <laughs> like a lot of new voters, five million more Trump yeah. voters. So imagine being someone who sat out Trump 2016 and then saw everything's going on and be like, ooh, yeah, like turns out that <laughs> like that's what I wanted all along. Um, so we're, we're, we're running out of time to genuinely bring the country together. And it's going to be nearly impossible if Mitch McConnell is saying no to everything and, and being an obstructionist, which he's, he seems like he's already suggesting he's going to be. Uh, so right. you, me, the Yang Gang, my family, everyone, we're heading to Georgia. Let's go. It's going to be great. Uh, we're going to go Georgia. fight it out in Georgia until January 5th. Uh, for the two Senate races that are there. So if you don't understand why we're heading to Georgia, um, right now it's a, it's going to be 48-50 in the Senate with Mitch as the majority leader. But there are two special Senate races on January 5th that if they're very competitive, both of them, uh, and that if Dems win them both, then you're 50-50 in the Senate and then Kamala becomes the tiebreaker. Then all of a sudden, uh, Joe's ability to pass cash relief, uh, Joe's ability to uh, try to work on infrastructure, Joe's ability to get things done shoots up tremendously because you don't have Mitch McConnell carping about, uh, uh, you know, how uh, this uh, is too ambitious or this is too um, expensive or whatever, like, the the objection is going to be. I mean, heck, like, Mitch isn't motivated by principle. We saw with Obama. It's like he wasn't like, oh, I'm going to do, I'm going to say no, 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 and then I'll say yes to this. He just says no. So we need to give our government a chance to operate and folks who listen to this podcast know that, uh, you know, like Washington has problems operating. <laughs> you know, it, it's not it's not operating at a high level right now. It's uh, it's very, very dysfunctional. <laughs> uh, and, and so if we can give it a modicum of functionality, it could be enormous for millions of families around the country. And the lever is Georgia. So Georgia, it's going to be neck and neck. Every vote's going to count. So if we get hundreds, thousands of volunteers to head to Georgia and canvas and knock on doors very, very safely, obviously, you know, wear masks and stay away from people and do outdoor events and the, the rest of it um, uh, and activate the folks in Georgia. It's going to be an uphill climb. I, I looked at it. There was a special election in Georgia that um, uh, apparently most of the special elections skew conservative, at least historically. Um, but I uh, but I think this one will be different if we execute. Like if all of the folks who wanted Joe to win uh, help in Georgia, 
that because the the fact is Joe's agenda is going to get stalled uh, if he can't get anything through the Senate. So celebrate Joe's victory, yes, but in practical terms, uh, this the these two Georgia races uh, are going to define whether Joe can get things done or not. Uh, so it's imperative we can we get to Georgia and um, activate voters. If we activate enough Democratic voters, clearly there's a path to victory because the entire state just flipped blue, and both of these Senate races were very very competitive, like uh, you know one or two points in Ossoff's case, um, and uh, 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 Raphael Warnock. It's unclear because it was a jungle primary, but he did get more votes than any other candidate, so that's a great place to start. Um, <laughs> so. Yep. so uh, but it, it's going to be, it, this is not a slam dunk at all. It's one reason why we need all hands on deck. Kelly Leffler, who's the other, who's technically the incumbent. So if you remember the senators who were accused of insider trading when uh, COVID news hit, uh, she's one of them. <laughs> she, uh, she's also the richest senator in the, in, um, in the country, which is really saying something because there are a lot of rich senators. Um, but she's worth, uh, <laughs> she really, she's worth $520 million. Yeah. Um, and so she's going to spend a lot and the, you know, like the conservatives are going to spend a lot of money. Um, so, uh, she also, this is just for the hoops people out there. Cause you know, I, I love hoops. Um, she also is the owner of the WNBA team, um, in Atlanta, the Atlanta dream. And when the WNBA had the black lives matter messaging, she like w was the only person who was like, this is not right. Uh, and then all of her players were like, sell the team <laughs> you know, because all of her players are obviously like yeah. most of them are black and, you know, obviously, you know, like don't, don't want an owner who's <laughs> somehow, uh, uh, you know, un un um, yeah. like uh, heading in the opposite direction. Um, so it, it, it's pretty fascinating what's at stake. Uh, so I can't wait to get to Georgia. I think everyone who um, campaigned for Joe should join us in Georgia because uh, we need to give Joe a chance to get things done. So if you are thinking of coming with us to Georgia, we're going to have some information soon. It's going to be a blast. It's going to be like an Iowa reunion, but warmer <laughs> in in. And uh, it's actually even kind of the same time of year, like January instead of February. Uh, but it's going to be great. We're going to have um, so much fun events, housing. All of these incredible Yang Gang uh, volunteers have already started offering rooms and bedrooms and um, housing for folks. Uh, this is the future of our country on the line. I can't wait to fight it out with a lot of you. Uh, there, there's just so much love. Um from the Yang Yang and from Iowa. It's like the best time of my life in many ways. And then when Evelyn got out there too, she was like, this is, you know, just, just sharing in the warmth and the love. Um, uh, you know, Lacey's there in in Atlanta. We've got like a lot of friends in Atlanta. There's Atlanta Yang Yang. Shout out to you all. You guys are incredible. Uh, so we're coming your way. Georgia, like freaking Yangapalooza uh, 2020. Maybe we'll even have something 2021-ish. There are all these people that are already saying that they're coming. I don't want to like put them on the hook. Uh, but let's just say that some of the people you associate with the Yang Gang um, have said that... Actually, screw it. I'll, I'll talk about this stuff. Why not? I'll put the heat on them. Why not? So I was at uh, I was at SNL uh, last night, uh, courtesy of Dave um, Chappelle. Obviously, he was hosting. You should watch that monologue if you have not. It was uh, genius as always. Um, so then Dave... Uh, so then Dave and I were talking and I was like, Hey, we're heading to Georgia. And he was like, man, like, uh, you know, if you need a hand, uh, you know, would love to help. So 
Dave may be coming to Georgia uh, and uh, helping um, helping us win those those races. There's some other heavyweight folks that uh, have said to me that they're looking at coming bands um, like it's going to be wild. I mean, again, all it's going to be outdoors. Uh, like Michelle Wolf said, she'll come and, and do an event. Um, so that'll be something that'll be probably again, outdoors. One thing I love about comedians is like, all you need to do is give them an audience and <laughs> like, uh, um, uh, but we're going to have a blast. It's going to be Yang Palooza. We're going to go to Georgia, um, knock on doors in a socially safe way. We're going to like get folks out, um the timeline is tight like the early voting starts pretty soon i want to say i want i i should check the dates here but i, I want the, the voter registration deadline is december 7th i know that one um and the early voting starts pretty quickly i think um sometime later this month uh so it's going to be epic uh come with us to georgia we're going to have soon resources available uh, where people can sign up, get activated, get housing, uh, and plug in in a way that's effective. Because, you know, if we're going to do this, obviously, we need to be roped in with the campaigns uh, and have uh, effective canvassing lists and the rest of it. Um, but that the, it's going to be awesome. It, it, it really is the future of our country on the line. If we win, we win these races, then we have a chance to solve some of the big problems, including, again, cash relief. Everyone knows I'm I'm all about cash relief, cash relief, cash relief. Like, it, I think we've got a much better chance of getting cash relief out the door if you have, uh, uh, if you have a unified government and people uh, actually willing to sign bills into law. Um, so this, to me, is like a lever where we could potentially alleviate the suffering of millions and millions of people. I mean, tell me that isn't worth it. Like, you know, you want to go fight for good. Like, you know, this is the battleground until January fifth, and the votes come in. I I love this this plan and vision Andrew so we're go we're going to Georgia and it's to me it's very Andrew Yang because it's um one it, it's forward thinking and it's problem solving in the sense that right now everybody's doing their you know spiking the football because we won the election which is true but you're seeing this clear as day like the entire political world is going to come crashing down on Georgia like whoever wins these two senate seats will hold the power in the in congress in the united states um and you as a problem solver, you always are and very logical. Like, and the best thing you do is if you care about the country is go down there and freaking help. So that's what we're going to do. Um, and so more details to come. Um, and look, we want to be mindful and thoughtful to those campaigns on the ground there that have a lot of great things going. We want to be additive and not, you know. A, oh, yeah. We're um, going to coordinate with them. We're not going to maverick yeah. it up. Like, you know, we're just going to yeah. plug folks and resources into the last thing we need. The awesome like, campaign and the Warnock the campaign. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like... Uh, <laughs> So don't worry, I, you know, so we're getting organized, super excited about it, um, but there's a lot of energy around it. I think we're going to be able to help a great deal. I, I genuinely think we're vital because uh, a lot of, like, you have to keep in mind, a lot of folks uh, in Georgia, like, you know, are just going back to their lives, like Joe won, you know, and they're like, oh, there's some races going on. Like, they, they might not understand the enormity of it. Um, and and the, certainly, like, if someone were to tell you, hey, there's a special election January 5th, you'd be like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. I vote in November. Yeah. I just voted. Like, what's going on? You know? <laughs> yep. uh, so, oh, my gosh. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think uh, I think our job is incredibly important where we have to keep people engaged and activated and uh, keep these races right. at the forefront of the Democratic voters in, in Georgia's mind so they see it as as big a deal as they should. 
Right. And I want to say this to be clear, because you're going to laugh at this, um, but we're not moving there to vote ourselves and we're not recommending people like pretend to get residency in Georgia and vote. We are moving there to help people <laughs> live in Georgia, vote for their senator. Because um, I had apparently Republicans uh, texting me, um, not like Republican friends, like operatives texting me that isn't Yang moving there to 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 establish residency and through the vote that's voter fraud i'm like that is a ridiculous statement that's not what's happening we are there to help others who live there already you're not moving there to vote yourself andrew can we put that on the record for now <laughs> yeah I don't, I don't even know what the, those rules look like like i'm, I'm going to rally folks <laughs> uh it, I, it's laughable but it, it seriously was my morning I want to quickly end on this note um and because i think you have an interesting voice here um there's going to be a lot of hoopla um, from our president and possibly some Republicans about voter fraud in this election. And I think you have a trusted voice here because I think if Democrats were doing shenanigans, you would be one of the first Democrats to, to call them out and be honest about it. Um, there's been no evidence of any voter tampering. Seriously, like, it looks to me, like all of the counting rooms you can Joe. see, they're freaking like, you know, just rooms full of people counting votes and then there are dozens of democratic and republican observers just hanging out in the room being bored out of their minds <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> well that's what uh, trump is doing they're sending like a person to the elect you know council elections wherever it is that the location and they're like we're not able to get in it's like yeah because we already have a democrat and republican who've been trained to identify like you're already in. It's like what you're there. You want, you're like, uh, yes. Yeah, you're you're already there. Just chill out. And the incentives uh, here are so like they cut the other way. If you're a Republican Secretary of State, you want a fair election because it was a Republican you look horrendous Secretary of State, State in Pennsylvania. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> like the, the um this stuff it, it does make me mad because uh, it, it's literally like what are you objecting to? Uh, you know, and uh, and the the uh, objections, um, you know, are clearly just uh, malleable based upon what you think is going to help your guy win. And it's cool, you know, like we we each want our person to win, um, but we still need to have some grounding and objective uh, vote counts and reality and, uh, and and this is one of the most dangerous things Zach, that that we're going to be fighting against more and more this actually is to me one of the great missions we have uh is that uh people just don't trust anything anymore uh because our institutions have been failing us in various ways uh you know like you look at the media and the, the media like trust us we know the media <laughs> like, like does get stuff wrong and have, has there. a very distorting lens <laughs> And, and so you, you look at it and uh, if you're a discerning person, you're like, oh, I can't believe any of this stuff. And uh, that's where we've pushed millions of Americans, but it's very, very dangerous. I, I'm, I'm happy to say that um, that the vast majority of folks on this one, Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter, looking up being like, look, like, you know, th there was no widespread voter fraud that caused this result. I mean, it, it does not make any sense on the face of it. Uh, it was just all over the place. There are people in these things like the, the, the stakes are, like you said, way, way too high. And even the examples that they come up with um, are, are dumb. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, they erected a cardboard barrier so we couldn't see. It's like, well, there were a dozen freaking observers in the room already and you were making them nervous because there's a crowd of you like freaking shaking your fists at ordinary Americans just trying to count votes. 
it's like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but like, uh, you know, I mean, if, if I was the manager of that situation, I'd be like, maybe we should like, just like put up a curtain, which is essentially what they did. Um, and there's nothing nefarious going on, <laughs> you know, like the, whole, the, whole, the whole thing. Yes. It pains, it, it pains me and it's going to be a real problem because, uh, these, the, these conspiracy theories are just getting stronger, frankly, and, and right. more and more people are becoming receptive to them for a variety of reasons. It's, um, uh, it's, it hurts democracy, right? And this is like the one institution that we can't have fail. You know, we've had a whole bunch fail. We've had a whole bunch lose trust, but this is the one our votes. And I, I do applaud. There's a number of Republicans that have said, look, it's over, like, shut up, you know, and I, I applaud them. That's, that's to me, true patriotism um, because, and, and Democrats and that's, did that's this, the, you know, that, that's the baseline, you know? Zach, in, in past times. Yes, we just agreed. Assumed that's they did that. true, true. Like, 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 <laughs> they're all fair, these freaking fair. crazy. <laughs> Anyone who did not do that, uh, like um it needs to get their mic removed essentially like over the sense that like like we should stop trusting them if they're like this thing is rigged (laughs) like you know like like the rest of it's like based on uh, like you know based upon your desire for it to be rigged uh like based on the fact uh, you lost right you didn't like the result we deserve uh, you know uh, certainly again if you got a big microphone or megaphone like you know you should have a little bit more discipline on, on something this important, you know, because yeah. like if, if you have people just don't trust this vote count, it's corrosive. So look to recap, Joe Biden's our president. Um, we've got a lot of work to do as a party. And to start with that work, we're heading to Georgia. Um, we're going to register and get out of the vote as much as humanly possible. Um, Andrew's moving. Register the other people that there. is. <laughs> well, yes, not ourselves. Jeez. Oh my gosh. Um, and today we've got um, we've got a good guest. We did this before the election, so we don't talk about the election with her. But Nina Turner is joining um, the powerhouse. Nina Turner, the freaking former head of our revolution, national co-chair for the Bernie Sanders campaign. We got to know her on the trail. I'm, I'm such a fan of hers and admire. She's like a true fighter for the people. Based in Ohio, too, which we talked about a little bit. Uh, really grateful to, to Nina for uh, sharing some of her time with us uh, and sharing some of her hopes for the Democratic Party and the future. Uh, she's going to be fighting for folks tirelessly. Um, she's a real warrior. That's the, that's the term yeah, I is. think of when... I think of Nina Turner, just a true warrior, uh, like just lover. Yeah. And it's timely because it, we're talking about, you know, Bernie's vision for it was a little different than yours, but they were, he was talking about, we need to talk, we need to focus on the working class, right? That is, that is the core of our revolution, a core of what, what Bernie's doing. And so, um, timely topic given the election, uh, you guys are gonna enjoy it. Nina Turner joining Yang Speaks. It is my privilege and pleasure to welcome to Yank Speaks, the co-chair of the Bernie 2020 campaign, history professor extraordinaire, activist, leader of the revolution, Nina Turner. Welcome, Nina. How are you? Oh, Andrew Yang, it's such a pleasure to be with you. I thought you was going to say leader of the free world. You know, you was on the roll there a little bit. <laughs> oh, you know, I mean, shoot. If you were the leader of the free world, it'd be a massive upgrade over the, this nonsense we're dealing with right now. Oh, absolutely. It, it definitely would be. But no, it's such a pleasure to join you uh, as we were talking earlier before we started our interview about our mutual admiration for each other. And it's certainly an honor to join you on your show. 
Yeah, seeing you on the trail, I was like, that was Nina Turner. That was awesome. And it, it is it was fun, too, because like you said, when you're on the trail, you kind of run across various people. Um, and um, like some people you like, some people you like less. <laughs> That's right. That's true. And it's all good. But you and your team especially were always courteous. You know, that was my experience. And there are a lot of people in a Bernie world or in the revolution who absolutely admire you and, and the work that you have done and what you are doing. And I'm certainly one of those people. Oh, thank you, Nina. That means so much to me because I was a burner in 2016. I still get the text to prove it. I was getting texts on the regular, which is because <laughs> like, I'm, you know, I'm just wanted like, um, you know, one, one of uh, Bernie's donors. Um, uh, and I got to say, um, when we were on the trail, uh, I didn't know if Bernie liked me and it was I was very nervous about it. But then he said to an interviewer, it's like, oh, I like Andrew Yang. And I was like, really? He likes me? I was like so happy. Um, and, and so hanging out with him, I saw Jane on the trail, too. Um, and, and I was so thrilled that it, it seemed like they knew where I was coming from and that um, we, we were tackling some of the same problems from slightly different angles or perspectives. But it, it really was, in my mind, always super aligned. And when folks said to me, like, hey, I'm for Bernie or whatever, it's like, yeah, I was for Bernie last time, too. Like, don't worry about it. <laughs> That's right. No, I, I've definitely heard the senator uh, mention you in, in the fondest of ways. And, you know, he's not a he's not a touchy feely kind of guy. So when he says he likes somebody, you can take that to the to the bank. Believe him when he says that. So, yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, I, I, I believed it. It, it really like I, I felt elevated in that moment. Uh, and then when I saw him next too, like I, I felt the same. Um, so I'm going to be selfish or a little bit selfish. Um, but first, uh, I think people who might not be familiar with your story, um, uh, you know, you went through a lot of adversity when you were young. You're in Cleveland right now, um, which is the area you grew up in. You kind of rose through the political ranks. You're a city council person. You're a state legislator. Um, uh, and then you hit the national stage in 2016 uh, on Bernie's first run. And the thing that I'm going to be selfish about first, would love to hear from you what, you, what your experience was like coming up, uh, which must not have been easy. I know you were one of um, one of seven children, <laughs> the oldest of seven children. Wow, that part I did not know. Tell me more. Oldest of seven children, and you have my 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 bio just right. I ran for secretary of state though in 2014. So before I got to 2016, I was the Democratic nominee in my home state of Ohio to run against one of the worst secretary of states in the country at that time. Uh, obviously, a Republican. I hate to say it, they've done everything possible to try to suppress the vote over the since since the presidency of, of President Obama, we saw a surge in Republican secretary of states, governors, legislators, uh, legislatures doing things that are the antithesis to our democracy. So, yeah, I ran for statewide office in the great state of Ohio. It was quite an experience. We have 88 counties and I tried to get to all 88 of those counties. And all I wanted to do, Yang, was to expand and protect access to the ballot box, just old fashioned. Just think people should have the right to vote no matter who they want to vote for. That really shaped me. I mean, that was a really big deal. Ohio is a big state. And I learned so much, especially traveling in the rural areas. I'm a city girl. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. And although I didn't necessarily, I didn't win that race, what I did win was new perspective and also, you know, you know, building up my political bona fides. And it was absolutely the right thing to do. I actually for I we have term limits in Ohio and I could have I could have ran one more time for the Senate, but I sacrificed that run to take it to the, the Republicans. 
Good for you, because that role in Ohio is so crucial, not just for the people of Ohio, but I mean, that can have national ramifications. Uh, and I can and I can imagine what that campaign looked like um, because I campaigned in the rural Midwest. I campaigned in the urban Midwest. Uh, and you learn a lot. You know, you head out to places uh, that you might not have been otherwise. And you have to make the case like, look, I'm actually here to try and help. <laughs> There's, you know, and, and but but there were some uh, bridges to cross and some barriers to overcome, at least in my experience. Oh, yeah. I mean, as I'm sure you know, and you're a person of color, too, and I am an African-American woman, just in case people didn't know that, it's, it's a struggle. And running for statewide office also opened my eyes to the negative side, which is very few African-Americans, not just in my state, have have ran and or won statewide office. And we got to do something about that in the United States of America. It's really sad. Uh, black women, there has not been a black woman governor yet in the United States. We got to do something about that. And really? Even, yeah, really. And even when we get our first, it's not enough. And, you know, say our sister Stacey Abrams ran very hard in Georgia and all, almost had it. Uh, we all, not maybe not everybody, but certain of us believe that she was robbed. But it, it says yep. something about this country. And although we've come a long way. We have a longer way to go in that it is still so incredibly hard for African-Americans and other people of color to penetrate when they are running for statewide office. And as you and I both know, those statewide offices are actually a lifting point or a launching pad, if you will, to a national office. As a nation, we have a long way to go to reconcile in many industries and politics is one of those, whether or not we truly believe that every citizen, no matter where they came from, no matter where their ancestors came from, whether or not they are. I even hate I mean, when I think about black people, the word word becomes the mind because we fought so hard to be respected. But there is a gulf in this country when it comes to certain levels of office and higher levels from state level all the way up to the federal level is one that is still quite a challenge. The the U.S. Senate and the presidency and governor's offices. Well, well, you're you're literally a teacher of history. uh, And I love the fact that you were pushing hard at that envelope. Um, I'm pretty sure when you were a state legislator, uh, there probably weren't that many black state legislators, and <laughs> you would be right. And isn't that? But it's it's sad though when you when you stop to think about it. If we just keep going, you just kind of say, "Oh, we got to work on that." But if you really just stop and pause to think about that, it is it is sad. It is a sad commentary on this nation, and we got we have a lot of work to do in many areas. But no, there were not many of us. It didn't take long for you to uh, to get launched into the national uh, spotlight uh, during the 2016 Bernie Sanders one uh, revolution part one. Uh, so you wound up playing a, a pretty big part in that race. Uh, I, I would love to hear from your perspective, because at that time, Andrew Yang was. Uh, just clicking on uh, the TV like everyone else and I like, watch in and, you know, um, but you were getting a, uh, you know, a participant's perspective on the 2016 race. Uh, when did you realize uh, just how well Bernie was going to perform in 2016 and that he was going to contend? 
I would have to say for all of the traveling that I did, the pulse on the ground, it was palpable. And I'm sure you kind of picked that up from watching it on TV. But I mean, when I tell you absolutely palpable, that was my first sign that, oh my God, the people that were coming across at these rallies across the country are really feeling something. And I'm using the word feel deliberately. It, it, it wasn't in their head. It was really in their heart. And they latched on to Senator Bernie Sanders in the same for the same reason why I did, which is his authenticity, his transparency, uh, the fact that he was not afraid to make the argument, to make the case that government... And the leaders of this government, particularly on the federal level, have failed the poor, the working poor, and the barely middle class in this country. He had that kind of conversation saying to the American people, you deserve better than what you are getting. And I'll tell you, Andrew, the thing that really attracted me to the center, you talk about being a little selfish here. For me, maybe it was selfish as well. You know, growing up as the oldest of seven children and having my mother die really young. My mother died when she was 42 years old. And I was in my 20s when she died and all of my siblings. So I'm in my 20s and we're all two years apart. My baby sister was 12 and I didn't quite know. I didn't know what the hell I was going to do it was not my, my family's very working was working poor. And I was at a community college, the very community college that I ended up having a tenure track professorship at. But I was a student there and thinking, my God, how am I going to go on? Because my mother had no money. She had no life insurance policy. And she had absolutely nothing. I did not know how I was going to go on. But I really used that pain to catapult me. And so I graduated from that community college. I matriculated to a four-year university. I earned two degrees there. And then I started to dabble into a PhD before politics kind of kind of got me. But I say that to say what 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 most drew me to the senator was his righteous indignation and two topics really hit home for me. One was Medicare for all, which I'm sure that doesn't come as any surprise to you. And the second was uh, higher education to, to make, to make sure that, that people, that mothers and fathers and, and custodial parents, you name it, college for all, because I'm a first generation college graduate. And I know how important that was to help me. I mean, it was it didn't solve all of my problems, but it definitely helped me to be able to lift my family out of poverty. And then when my son became a second generation college graduate, that meant more to me than even the degrees that I have right now, Andrew. So those were the That's two beautiful. two things that really drew me to the senator. So in 2016, even though the media didn't quite get it, if you were on the ground with us, you felt it. I vividly remember watching a Bernie Sanders speech relatively early in that race. And I agreed with every word he said. I was like, this guy just spoke the absolute truth. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, like, I was like, we need more of this. Like, this is what we need. Um, and, and then you had on the other side, Hillary Clinton, um, who I'd say I, I was, I was fine with, but I didn't have that much enthusiasm for. Uh, and so for me, it was a relatively straightforward. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to um, support Bernie. And then the, the fact, of course, you know, Andrew Yang's support was, you know, like not that significant a thing in, in 16. Um, and then uh, and, and then his mistreatment at the hands of the media and the DNC just like, uh, like um, made me even more fired up. Uh, where you talk about it's like, well, the media didn't get it or whatnot. It seemed pretty clear to me that the media was trying to 
um, minimize the level of Bernie Sanders support where a lot of the coverage was like, and he can't win. And like that, this person, you, you know, it's like, well, this is interesting. It's like, oh, surprising how many people are for this guy. And I was like, have you actually heard the guy speak? And it seemed very clear, um, certainly after the fact, even that the DNC kneecapped him and did him dirty. Uh, you know, that I, I think on the merits, um, if Bernie had been just allowed to compete freely against Hillary Clinton, I think there's a great chance he would have won that race. The media wasn't trying to put its thumb on the scale. Um, uh, against him if the dnc rules and the superdelegates weren't against him i think there's a great chance he would have been the nominee in 16 and i think if he'd been the nominee he would have beaten trump well you know i agree with that amen is what amen to everything that you said and it really stoked for the bernie crats people who believed in the senator from the beginning resentment with the dnc and you saw that play out and you still see remnants of that I think the party has a long way to go to heal. And to heal, you have to admit when you are wrong. And I, that still has not happened. But I totally agree with you. We would be talking to President Bernard Sanders right now instead of uh, having to deal wow. with the instead of having to deal with the I terror mean, that we have right now. Yeah, uh, and and I agree with you. There's never really a reckoning at the DNC where there's never like a mea culpa. Like, wow, we uh, screwed that one up uh, on an epic scale. Um, though there was massive turnover at the DNC where when, when people are mad at the DNC and you probably know this, you go there, like, it's probably like none of the same people <laughs> anymore, but none of them were our people either. So it was just, I think they just replaced people with the same types of people. Neoliberal. Yeah. You would know better than I do on that side. I'm a member of the DNC too, by the way. Gang, I am a member of the DNC from the great state of Ohio, even though some people might not necessarily know that because I definitely, am critical of the DNC because I do understand what many of them don't understand is that what drew people to Senator Sanders was not an affinity for a party. It was what he was standing for. And if the Democratic Party wants to have a bigger tent and have the ability to win offices from the local level all the way up to the federal level, they have to recognize that that new majority that it will take for Democrats to win are not necessarily all diehards. They are. They believe in a value proposition and not necessarily loyalty to a party. And especially young people, Yang, I'm sure you saw that and heard that on the trail. Yeah, I, I appreciate the folks who've been uh, um, doing the work in uh, local democratic circles and, and party politics for a long time. But I also think there should be an openness to um, where the people are heading and so it seems like there's been a kind of preconception in a number of cycles it's like well of course it's going to be hillary of course it's gonna be this and it's like well no one's voted yet you want to see what the what the people think isn't that what we're all about uh and certainly that played out very very forcefully in 2016 um and uh, then you were obviously his national co-chair in 2020 um this race, from I'd be curious from your perspective, uh, what happened with this race, um, where certainly I was part of the race. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I had much to do, <laughs> much to do with um, uh, with some of like the uh, the state wins and losses uh, down the stretch, since it, it seems like a lot of it came down to South Carolina and some other places. Um, so, if you remember the DNC, then you remember when Pete. Buttigieg ran for head of the DNC. Oh, oh yeah, took, I do. Uh, 
I was supporting yeah. Keith Ellison at the time. Congressman Ellison was my candidate. Yeah. So when you saw, you probably saw Pete speak uh, to the DNC at various times. Like, was there an inkling then? It's like this guy, this guy's gonna run for president in a hot minute. <laughs> like, where, where is any sense of that? I heard those those rumblings. I mean, for me, I didn't I didn't give it a thought. I mean, I was laser focused on Congressman Keith Ellison. But now that I think back on it, yeah, I do remember people saying saying that he had that 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 itch, so to speak. Yeah. So I'm, I wasn't surprised to see him run. Um, uh, so the Bernie 2020 campaign, um, there was a period when I thought Bernie was going to win the race. Um, I think a lot of people did. Um, you know, like the, the, when, when you looked at it, I mean, um, Bernie and Pete were essentially the co-winners coming out of Iowa, depending upon how you look at it. Um, and then you know how I look at it. <laughs> you, we won <laughs> Iowa. But go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, for, for what it's worth, for, for what it's worth, I tweeted the same. You know, I was like, I think Bernie won Iowa. Now let's like, go on to the next one. <laughs> you know, it was just because I thought it's like, well, the man. You know, man got more votes. Um, That's it. Uh, the popular seat. But you see how they changed the rules? And you didn't open up Pandora's box on that. See, the popular vote did, doesn't, didn't count for our campaign at the time. They changed the rules on us in Iowa. But uh, we went on to make history. We won the first three contests, technically. You know? I mean, that was a big deal. And we still were written yeah, off by a- the media. There was a head of steam. So you you win Iowa, and I said as much. Win New Hampshire, which people expected, but it was still a a romp. And and, and then coming out of Nevada, it was like Bernie. I, you know, and I and I was quoted as saying it too. I was like, it's a great chance Bernie like runs the table here. Um, so tell me about those days because I've been now part of my own campaign, and you have like a head of steam momentum. Um, when things don't go well, uh, it, you feel like. You're on like, this is what I felt like. Uh, I, this is the first time I've described it this way. We'll see if it works. Um, so you, you know those medieval movies when they're like a bunch of people on a horse, like, you know, like a Braveheart type charge or like this. That's what it felt like when you're on like the campaign trail. You're like riding and, you know, doing rallies and all these people volunteering for for your campaign and energizing you. And then when things go poorly um in a race it feels like that scene in that movie when like the horses fall <laughs> like there, there's like this you know uh, uh pit and then like the horses go like, oh and then like you're all like sort of um on the ground and everyone's scrambling around and like you know people are are um um like uh getting stabbed right and left at least that's the way the movie goes uh so so that that's when things go poorly um but when things are going well it feels like you're never going to lose. It feels like we've got the wind at our back and everything's going our way and uh, we will not be denied. I, I'd love to hear what it was like from your perspective, uh, like heading in and out of Iowa in the early states. It's, it's almost an indescribable feeling, especially since I was with the senator in 2016 and just to see that kind of momentum. I felt as though the seeds we planted, as I reflected state by state, I felt like the seeds we planted in 2016 were bearing fruit in 2020. That's how it felt. And it just, it was, it's like a snowball rolling down a, a mountain, right? You're picking up that, picking up that, that pace and rolling fast and building, building, building. And by the time we got to Nevada and when those results came in, because I was the one in Nevada and I stayed there to give the, you know, the speech to the, to our supporters in person there on the senator's behalf 
And I mean, it was smoking. You hear me? Because what Nevada proved, because remember, yang, all the naysayers said, oh yeah, Iowa is white. Totally disregarding the black people and other people of color that live in that state. But I digressed. New Hampshire is white. So again, and, totally. And Bernie's neighboring state. Right. So they'd be like, yeah. Oh, oh nothing, right. nothing. It didn't mean anything, <laughs> you know? But when we got to Nevada, baby, they couldn't deny it. They couldn't deny the diversity. And he won, especially young people, you know, the African-American community, our Hispanic community. He won communities of color in Nevada, along with our white uh, sisters and brothers. So he couldn't be denied. And to me, I think that is the moment when the neoliberal, when the power structure of the Democratic Party decided we got to put a stop to this. I, I really do believe that. And South Carolina did us in and it wasn't enough time between South Carolina and the other states for us to re to regroup. I have never seen an endorsement have an impact like Jim Clyburn coming out for Joe Biden in South Carolina. That was unbelievable. It was like yeah. someone had just taken like a um like a pin out of a dike or a dam or something like that where all of a sudden Clyburn was like I'm for Joe and then all of a sudden whoosh like this freaking tide of uh, voters in South Carolina followed his lead um, I, I genuinely think that that one endorsement changed the course of uh, the nomination and the race entirely the course of history really you you feel that way imagine how we felt when I tell you we worked extraordinarily hard in that state, we worked harder in that state than the Biden campaign. I know that unequivocally. We were in that state early. We didn't take anything for granted. We had people coming in and out of that state, our national surrogates, people who you and I both admire, like Dr. Cornell West made several trips to that state. Brother, you know, the lethal weapon himself, Danny Glover, who was beloved across generations. He even drove Yank. Brother Danny Glover drove from one end of South Carolina to the other, drove himself. He would be in that state sometimes when even I wasn't. I adopted that state, even though I traveled all over the country. I visited South Carolina more than any other state, going to all kinds of events, bringing people in, Susan Sarandon, Tim Robbins. I mean, you name it, in and out, all age groups. Philip Agnew from the Dream Defenders, who I know you know. I mean, just from, from millennials to boomers to Gen Xers, you name it. We put so much effort. And that South Carolina team worked so hard. And we knew our backs were against the wall. So although we it didn't have the outcome that we wanted, we worked and didn't take it for granted. And you're absolutely right. When Congressman Clyburn came up in there, it totally turned that entire thing around. You know, Vice President Biden up until that point had never won in primary in all the times he had run for president until that particular moment. And then the coalescing of everybody else on that ticket, you might not necessarily agree with me, but when you got the number two candidate in the race so far, drop out and endorse, you know, Vice President Biden, you got Senator Klobuchar did the same thing. Others did, hey, that was it. That was all she wrote. And then COVID hit. Two, so you got all of that plus COVID, bam, end of our end of our our run. Uh, I feel your pain. Um, I was trying to describe that sort of the charge, like the high of feeling like you're gonna win, 
Um, and, and then that dispiriting, uh, uh, feeling that you can't describe too when you realize you might not win or when you realize like oh my gosh like as hard as we fought and scratched and clawed here in South Carolina to, to try and win every vote uh, you know it, it may not go our way uh, it's why we in some ways uh, do what we do where the, the only way you can succeed um, in this kind of politics and activism is if you're putting your heart and soul into it or else it's impossible that's one thing that people don't appreciate fully where they think it's like oh you could be doing it for um you know some kind of self-serving reason it's like you try doing this for any length of time <laughs> for, for, for any reason other than the fact that you genuinely are trying to um to fulfill like a vision that someone else has or you have or think you can improve people's way of life because it, it's uh and so you put your heart and soul and energy into it and then when it doesn't go your way it's devastating it is so hard uh, to just like pick yourself up after that and be like, well, you know, that, that like, especially in your case, because you'd been grinding it out for years. Five years. Um, when the Senator created our revolution, as you know, after 2016 and, and, and I got the opportunity to run that organization and he ran again. So yes, five years and five years, I, 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 I physically touched down in almost 50 States. I think there are only three States that I did not physically go to over the last wow. five years. Yeah, I gave it my all, gang, really. We know you did, Nina. I mean, it, it's why you have so much uh, admiration among so many of us is that we know you're a warrior and that you've been uh, fighting the fight uh, on the ground, in the air, on the airwaves, like wherever it needs to be fought. <laughs> like now in your in your earbuds, Nina's got a podcast that I'm going to go on in a minute. Um, Hello, somebody is the podcast. Hello, somebody. There we go. So COVID has hit and then the entire world has changed. Uh, you know, Joe's the nominee. Um, one of the reasons, by the time we're having this conversation, he, he, or this thing gets released, like he, he may even be um, the president-elect. I mean, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. I, I believe that he will be. Um, the thing I'm most eager to talk to you about is what the future of the Democratic Party looks like or politics if it's not within the Democratic Party. Uh, because you and I were sharing frustration over the fact that we haven't passed a COVID relief bill. Uh, I'm very, very frustrated. I think that it's devastating for millions of American families. They deserve better. Uh, there is no excuse to be forestalling aid for any kind of uh, political purpose. Um, if we don't get aid across the finish line soon, like we might be waiting till 2021. Uh, it, the last time anyone got any help was April. Even that wasn't sufficient. Um, so my frustration with, with the Democratic Party is uh, quite high on that front um, and on other fronts. Uh, you know, some of them that we, we described here. Um, we do have something of a duopoly going, um, and the Republican Party is uh, is the party of Trump right now. Um, so to, to me, like there, there's no meaningful choice <laughs> where, where to, to be. You no, know, uh, like I've obviously been campaigning for um, for Joe and Kamala, but I'm really interested to hear what you forecast both as like the future we want to see. And you were one of the people that said, like, I think the Democratic Party is worth fighting for, though that was a number of years ago and, you know, a number of 
uh, campaign campaigns ago. <laughs> I'm starting to feel believe it, believe that less so, Andrew. To be honest with you, um, to your point, pe- flesh and blood is not widgets, and. One of my greatest honors was serving on the local level. I know all the oxygen and goes to the shiny objects up in the Congress. But to really know when you meet your constituents in the grocery store or at funerals or when you're at a doctor's appointment and they're pouring out their heart about their challenges. Somehow, some people in that Congress have totally lost track of the flesh and blood, the everyday people that either suffer or whose suffering is ameliorated because of some actions that they take. And it is a disgrace. It is immoral in my book what is going on right now on both sides. You know, I'm not letting any of them off the hook when we have so many of our sisters and brothers absolutely suffering. It is unacceptable to let politics get in the way of the politics. And I say it that way because politics can be used as a tool for good. Now, we don't see much of that these days, but it can. So when people say politics got in the way, I question what type of politics got in the way. But now they're letting the politics get in the way of the politics. And it's don't give Trump a win because I believe that's what's going through their head. Don't don't give him a win at all costs. And so the people who are suffering are collateral damage. And you tell me how you feel. That's how I feel. And that right there. Is wrong as hell and wrong as heaven. Pick your choice, hell or heaven, but it's wrong. Yeah, I I would uh, approach this negotiation, Nina, where it's like when push comes to shove, I'm just gonna try and get the people what they need uh, in a time frame that might actually save lives, alleviate suffering, keep roofs over people's heads, uh, you know. And I'm gonna push for the best bargain I can with the constraint that I'm fucking going to deliver to my people like in, in a reasonable time frame, you know. So. Like that, that to me would be the priority, especially in this case where like, look, if you don't get everything you want, like you can always go back and try again, uh, like in in the new year, there's going to be like another set of people. So it it lends weight to your feeling that there, there, there's like a political calculation going on here, uh, where, where you don't want to give Trump the win. Um, it's certainly not the way I'd approach it. Like, I, I feel like not enough attention has been paid to this. I don't understand it. I've, and I've talked to at least a couple of members of Congress, Roe, who, whom you're friends with, I'm sure, from the campaign, because... At least he said, take the deal, you know? Take the deal. Like, that, that, that's really the takeaway. Just take take the fucking deal. Um, so, uh, Roe, was Roe another national co-chair? He was. Oh, race. my God. Yang, I was so blessed. So, it was Congressman Roe Khanna... Uh, Mayor Carmen Eulene Cruz from Puerto Rico and the ice cream man himself, Ben Cohen, of uh, one of the founders of Ben and Jerry's. It was Ben a, and Jerry's, of course. Yes, highest honor, one of the highest honors of my life to serve with them and for them to make me the first among equals. I mean, I I would do this all over again if they would be co-chairs with me. They they are absolutely the best. One of the, the conversations I had recently, Nina, that um, you might find interesting, it's actually, I, I think, very, very good listen. Um, I sat with Justin Amash, uh, who, um, you know, we may differ with politically in, in many, many respects, but he actually was digging into the dynamics and the mechanics and the process. And he, what he suggested was like, look, if you're the average member of Congress, and you're, if you're in the minority party, you're not seeing any of it. 
And even if you're in the majority party, you're not seeing a whole heck of a lot of it. It's like the leadership's working it out. Uh, and and you're like several rungs away from the negotiations, just kind of waiting for a bill to come in. Um, and then the, you're, you're not going to have much time to review the bill. Uh, and you're going to be asked to just sort of give a thumbs up or thumbs down. And the easiest thing you can do is just sign off on it because there's not a robust amendment process anymore. Like there's not a whole lot going on. So even if you're in Congress, you're essentially waiting for Nancy to deliver anything for you to look at. Um, and uh, that that's the way it's happening on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, it would be, you know, like you're waiting for Mitch or in this case, uh, Steve Mnuchin or Trump or whomever. Um, and, and, and it was a very bleak vision, frankly, of the way these uh, deals are getting hammered out and the uh, way legislation is getting passed. You have more experience than I do where you were a state legislator. Um, when I talked to folks who were from state legislatures, uh, they described, uh, and this actually includes Justin because he was a state legislator in Michigan. He was like, it works so much better at the state level than at the federal level in his experience. Yeah, at least he has those two to compare. I have not reached the federal level yet. We'll see. Uh, uh, stay tuned, but no, it, it just, it doesn't make sense. In lies the problem. What you just described is problematic. And so my question would be, why aren't the members, some members are like Congressman Rokana, but I'm talking about the ones, if I were a member of Congress, I would be stepping on desk, on heads, crime, bloody murder, because my people are suffering because y'all want to play games. They don't have time to wait. Game. See, that's, I don't have, I don't have patience or tolerance. Some, and some, some, and some, at some level, we got to draw the line, and this is one of them. A, a worldwide pandemic can't get these folks to move. The suffering of millions of people can't get them to move. It makes no sense to me. Democrats and Republicans, both. It's, it's pro- this is a problem. Dysfunctional the government. Dysfunctional government. Uh, the detachment of our leaders from the day-to-day lived experience of the vast majority uh, of their constituents. Uh, that's something that, you know, I, I think is killing us. It's corruptive in various ways. So I, one thing I'm for, I'd be curious what you think of this and this, I don't know, um, I haven't heard you talk about it, but I'm for term limits, uh, in part for some of these reasons. Um, uh, it could be on the longer side, you know, I was proposing 12 years during the, the campaign. So it's enough time for you to settle in and get some stuff done. It's not like in and out, but, um, it would also prevent someone from, being there for 30 years and uh, just kind of waiting their turn uh, and the rest of it. And one person who helped convince me of this uh, approach is Roe. Actually, I talked to Roe and he's like, yeah, there should be term limits. <laughs> if I had to judge today's Congress, I would say that. But as somebody who served in the legislature where there are term limits, I'm kind of torn and I'm torn for this reason. Unlike the city council, you know, the local level where I served, to me, state level and the national level, to quote the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, he wasn't saying this in reference to Congress, but I just want to use longevity has its place. And sometimes you need people to to be in these seats more than just a minute. Now, you don't need them to be there forever, but there's some institutional knowledge that is wrapped up into being in a place and if you're using that knowledge to help navigate politics on behalf of your constituents it's a good thing if you're there holding up stuff it's a bad thing but the power let me go back to the power is going to go somewhere so i question whether or not we want the power to be in the hands of bureaucrats or we want the the power to be in the hands of, of people who were 
elected by the people as problematic as that can be what i've learned on the on the state level is that we pa- this state passed term limits because people were like throw out the bums they were upset and they were mad but a lot of the people who were in charge of that campaign at the time have had second thoughts because what they have seen is that nature abhors a vacuum and so that power is going to go somewhere you know where it goes it goes with the, on the bureaucratic side how long are the term limits in Ohio? Eight years in both chambers. But what you can do is you can switch chambers. So in a way, they found a loophole in the term limits. But what it has done is that the bureaucrats and the lobbyists in our state, they have a lot of the power because there is no limit for their influence. Yeah, I I, I think that there is a legitimate concern uh, around... Uh, like you said, power just flowing to uh, lobbyists, bureaucrats, um, unelected figures. Um, I think if you do term limits, which I still do believe in, um, you you need to make them long enough so that uh, it's not just people coming in and out and looking around uh, trying to find the bathroom while like the, the lobbyists are pulling the strings. <laughs> right. Well, they're pulling um, strings now. Okay. So, but yeah. Yeah. So that so there there is a tension there because there would be the other thing I believe is that. Um, term limits make more sense at the federal level and the congressional level than they do at the state level. Um, because I, I've, I, cause I've heard what you'd said at the state level. Um, it's, uh, it's more of an issue. And I also think the detachment issue is a bigger problem at the federal level. Like if you go to DC and you're hanging out there for, um, you know, uh, 20, 25, 30 years, like it's hard to feel like, uh, like that person that, uh, is you know just trying to get by in your community if you're like hanging out in DC for that long, and we're making elected officials celebrities, which I, which I abhor. Rock star, hell no. We need servant leaders. We don't need rock stars in the Congress, and that is something about our culture and social media and how many clicks and how many followers that has really just turned this thing around. That people want stars instead of uh, workhorses. Being able to quantitate or like have put a number on uh, people's following is dark and evil. It's terrible. It's like you just end up chasing uh, clicks and views and bullshit. Uh, you know, it, it's it, it's all a distraction. Um, but because you can count it, it becomes this is actually a summary of a lot of things that are wrong in American life. It's like if you can count it, then all of a sudden you're like, I can count this. <laughs> And then, like the most important things about life that you can't count, uh, end up falling by the wayside. True that. It's so true. Well, Andrew Yang, I don't know. We didn't solve all the problems of the world, but I think we got a little more understanding. You asked me to talk about what I where I think the future holds. I do believe that the civil unrest that we've been seeing is going to continue no matter who wins. This country needs a real healing. I don't think we have the leadership in either one of the camps to have the type of moral clarity and healing voice that is necessary. And I compare that to, and maybe this is, might not be a fair comparison, so I will admit that up front, to what Mr. Nelson Mandela, then President Nelson Mandela, was able to do on the backdrop of an apartheid South Africa And he had such moral, you know, not just that he was brilliant, not just that he was a revolutionary, not just that he went to prison for almost 30 years for standing up for black South Africans. 
but that he had this moral clarity and essence about him that was able to pull that nation, even if it wasn't in the, he pulled that nation together. Now, more work needs to be done in South Africa. I'm not here to say that the lives of black Africanas are where they should be because it is absolutely not. Yeah, the, the truth and reconciliation, like a, a massive step forward. I mean, we could use that here yes. in the U.S. Long time coming. And so that is one of my biggest fears is that people, especially people who are totally anti-Trump, are going to be so have such a sigh of relief that he's not there should he lose, that that's going to be it. That the expectation of the next administration is going to be very yes. low. And I'm worried about yeah. that. This is the big danger, Nina, is that everyone's like, okay, we got rid of Trump. It was all Trump's fault. Uh, Now normalcy can return. Meanwhile, people's way of life will still be disintegrating. People will still be losing trust and faith in government. Uh, And you just be like, no, look, I'm sane. I'm rational. I'm well-intended. I'm competent. Like that should be enough. Everyone calm down. And it's like, no, you're missing the point. Like you're missing the point that millions of us have been left behind. Uh, Millions of us have been ignored. It's getting worse for millions of us. You know, our, our way of life is deteriorating. And the big danger is that the forces that gave rise to Donald Trump are not going away. I mean, Trump was sort of a singular figure, um, but there is going to be a successor to Trump. And this populist energy is going to keep on rising on both sides because you have such low trust and faith in our institutions who have done nothing to to demonstrate that they deserve our faith and confidence like you know, like a lot of the time. And, and my great fear, Nina, is that the Democratic Party is going to be the last people standing saying, believe in institutions, believe in institutions, while the crowds just keep getting bigger and bigger, being like, why on earth would we be listening to you? Um, and, and this is a critical weakness of the Democratic Party is that they actually are uh, um, kind of blinded um, to the failings of their own institution and the and the institutions that they represent and embody uh, like that they and, and you can see it in the fact that they um like when someone calls out their failures like you know like that they just look up at you like you're ignorant or you don't understand how the world works or whatever fucking bullshit <laughs> you know like, meanwhile it's like look you've been failing us for years like where are the consequences to that uh you know and and and, and one of the reasons why like i love what you and Bernie stood for is like, you were trying to do it the good way. It's like, look, here, you're like, let's just get more votes. <laughs> you know, like there, there are many nastier ways that, that things are going to be um, challenging that these institutions and the, these leaders uh, and, and they're, they're, they're just not, uh, many of them don't see it. Um, I, I'm hopeful that they'll go big enough and dig deep enough where they can actually start solving some of the real problems that are experienced by people and restore that trust and confidence. It's a very tall order and it's something we have not seen. Uh, it would require something new. It would require something new um, out of people. And it sounds like you're looking at it saying, look, Andrew, there's not much reason for me to expect something new. <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's not. I'm really counting on this uprising, this awakening that we're having and groups like Roots Action and Our Revolution and Progressive Democrats of America, even DFA the, the uh, or the Democratic Socialists of America, uh, I those types of groups and then Black Lives Matter and other groups that I have not named that that bubbling 
in the streets is going to continue. I do not want the sleeping giants, Andrew, to ever go back to sleep. I want them to stay awake. I want them to continue to fight for what is just, for what is right, and for what is good, to not allow a Biden-Harris administration to have a honeymoon because the pandemic just revealed what was already there. And like you just said, that populist energy on the Trump side is going to go somewhere and it's going to go to somebody that's a little more savvy than uh, President Donald J. Trump. You, you, you could have someone both malignant and competent. You know what I mean? Like not not just like uh, like, like the kind of buffoonery uh, of, uh, of... It would be uh, worse. Trump. It, it would be worse. So it would behoove the Democratic Party to get a clue and to get a clue quickly and to provide a, to have a vision that provides provision for the people. And that's why I love about your universal basic income. I mean, you came in with some ideas that were, and I got to tell you too, my son, I forgot to tell him we we were interviewing, maybe when I interview you for my show, because he, he, he liked you too. So, um, yeah, you, you came in with some really strong ideas. And I think, um, between your campaign and our campaign, we were quite a force in awakening the sleeping giants and getting people to dream another dream, a bigger dream, to see the world through new eyes or through a different lens of what is possible. That's what our campaign is accepting too little and asking for too little in many respects. For, for long, too long. long. That's right. Everyday people. So, Andrew, listen, I'm going to keep pushing out there and raising hell. I consider myself a hell-raising humanitarian, whether people like it or not. And let's see what happens. Well, Nina, you're not going anywhere. We definitely need you. Uh, And um, we need to either get the Democratic Party to to find itself um, or present something different. Um, But you're going to be a huge part of either one of those. And I, I appreciate the hell out of you for it. Um, thank you for being here. Well, thank you. And I appreciate the hell out of you too. This has been beautiful. Beautiful.